All right, the title of my sermon is Our Greatest Need, The Big Idea, Only Jesus Can Meet Our Greatest Need. What is our greatest need? What is it? I mean, if you ask the world that question, hey, world, uh, what is our greatest need? Here are some answers I think you'd get. Spouse. The perfect job. A raise or just more money. Power and influence. The right friends. Maybe if you talk to some younger individuals, um, and if I could just make the team. Right? right now in my life, that is my greatest need because with that will come status, maybe acceptance. If I could just make the team or the right boyfriend or girlfriend. We have to understand, though, that none of these things will truly satisfy, nor will they solve the greatest problem and meet our greatest need. Mankind, because of sin, often misdiagnoses the problem and therefore settles for a temporary and unfulfilling solution. You've heard the passage read. This is my all-time favorite passage to teach. I've taught Mark 2, 1 to 12 on three different continents. I love this. I love Mark. Mark's my favorite gospel. Um, what's going on here? Let me, let me give a few, uh, just, just some background really fast. So Jesus begins his ministry in Capernaum. Uh, he's teaching with great authority. He's doing miracles. He continues on. And then in Mark 2, he comes back to Capernaum. This was like his home base for ministry. And word gets out that Jesus is back. People are excited. Expectations are high because last time he was here, he healed many. He taught with authority. And so in come our four friends. We'll just, you know, four men. And they have a friend who's paralyzed, meaning he can't walk, right? He's hopeless and helpless. They hear that Jesus has returned. His reputation precedes him. They believe that if they can bring their friend to Jesus, Jesus can heal their friend, make him well, make him walk. And so they get to the home, and guess what? They weren't early risers. They should have been. Come on, guys. Five o'clock, coffee's brewing, let's go. I guess they slept in. They get to the house where Jesus is, and it's a bit anticlimactic. What happened? The house is full, man. There's no way they can get inside. And this is the best part of the story. And, and I've always wondered, man, how did they get this guy up on top of the roof. I had a neighbor in Washington who sadly died of brain cancer, and his wife Mary would often call me, and she'd say, hey, Dennis fell again. And so if you've ever picked up what I would call just dead weight, right? This person couldn't get up. It's hard. A full-grown man. How did they get this guy on top of the house? Well, in the first century in Palestine, houses were constructed in such a way, if you're a builder, there was always an outside staircase leading up to the top. On the top of the house, they would work or rest. And so they go up to the top. But can you imagine? Let me set the scene. Jesus is teaching. All eyes are fixed on him. He's teaching with great authority. People are listening intently. And then all of a sudden, and crunch, dust begins to fall from the ceiling. People are looking around, what is going on? And then a hole opens up. And light spills into the room, and a little head pops out, right? And a man is lowered. And it's obvious that this man can't walk, he can't move. At that point, what do you think everyone's expecting? Up to this point, what has Jesus done when confronted with somebody who's sick or diseased? He 
He heals them, but that's not what he does. He will, but not yet. I want to answer four big questions this morning. Number one, what is mankind's greatest need? Number two, who is able to meet our greatest need? Number three, what gives him the right to do that? And number four, how does one have their greatest need met? All right, so number one, I'm going to move pretty quick here, so pay attention. What is mankind's greatest need? Let's start with verses four and five. And when they could not get near him, right, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, remember a little, little face pops in, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, no one expected this, I promise you, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I love this passage because it's packed with vivid imagery. It's full of surprise. This is a great story. I mean, who's ever known a great storyteller? Maybe a grandpa. Old guys are the best, right? Especially hunting stories. I'm just always captivated like, wow. Maybe you're not. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, I'm, so, I'm sorry that you've never uh, had the privilege of, of sitting before a great storyteller, but it's captivating, right? This is a great story if you've never heard it. You have the effort of the four men. I mean, they remove the roof. Come on now. There, there's desperation on behalf of these men to get to Jesus. And then you have Jesus' surprising declaration, your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, the story ends, you've already heard it read, with the miracle of the paralyzed man being healed. Now, let's not forget why these five men were there in the first place. Jesus had a reputation as a miracle worker, and his reputation preceded him. In fact, Jesus' first miracle in Mark's gospel is recorded where? Capernaum. Okay, so uh, earlier in chapter 1, he's in a synagogue, which is a place of worship. He's teaching with great authority. Everyone's like, wow, I mean, <laughs> it's a, kind of a slight against the religious leaders. He doesn't teach like our religious leaders. He teaches with great authority. Ouch. But then there's a man who's demon-possessed, and Jesus heals him. And then later that evening at Peter's house, Simon Peter, his mother-in-law is sick, and he heals her. And then many with various diseases are brought to Jesus, and he, he heals them. Why did they come to Jesus? Because Jesus had a reputation for being a healer or a miracle worker. And now we come back to our story. The paralyzed man is presented before Jesus. And again, this scene, this exact scene, has played out numerous times already in Jesus' ministry. The sick and the diseased are brought before him, and he, he heals them. In fact, that is what everyone is expecting. They're watching with great expectation, eager to hear Jesus utter the words, get up and walk. And yet, something else happens. Something no one expected, a different set of words are uttered. What are they? Son, your sins are forgiven. What? You could have heard a pin drop. What? Now, what's going on here? Again, don't be worried. The paralyzed man is restored, but not yet. Here's the question. Why does Jesus address this need first? Because it represents the greater need. Forgiveness of sin 
is fronted in our passage because forgiveness of sin is our most important what? It's our most important need. All right, let me tell you a story. So again, I mentioned I've preached this passage on three different continents. But there's one place where I preached this passage back in 2007. How long ago was that? It was like 15 years, right? And it was at the Boston Rescue Mission. So I went to seminary in Boston. Uh, It's a fun place to be for three years. I'm glad I'm back in East Texas. But when I was there, I served at the Boston Rescue Mission. And this was a drug rehab slash homeless shelter. And I did Bible study there every week. And I would often preach on Fridays. And and I lived there for a summer. I got a lot of crazy stories. A lot of the guys there had just gotten out of prison. And I remember on a Friday night, I got to preach Mark 2, 1 to 12. And this is what I said. So imagine this. So there was an emergency homeless shelter on the seven-story building on the bottom floor, emergency homeless shelter. So, I mean, any given evening, there'd be 100 homeless people plus the residents. It was a packed-out house. So Friday night, I'm in a room maybe half this size, and it's full, and I'm preaching Mark 2 and 12, and this is what I said. I said, listen, I know in this room there are represented a lot of important needs. And I began to go through them. I said, I know for many of you, you don't know where you're going to sleep tonight. Because again, in a homeless shelter like this, there's only so many beds, right? And once they run out of beds, people have to be turned away. And so I said, I know for many of you tonight, an important need is you need a warm bed to sleep in. I know for many of you, you haven't eaten today. So a full belly, that's an important need. I know for many of you, right, you've been wearing the same clothes for a week. And an important need would be Fresh clothes, or a bath, or a shower. I know for many of you that because of your addiction, because most of the people that were in the program were heroin addicts, and because of their addiction, they lost family. They were estranged from their wife and children. And I said, an important need, yes, is to be reconciled to your family. I said, I know for many of you, you don't have work right now. Important need, what would it be? Work. And so I I went through all these needs... And, and for that group gathered, these were, import, these were real needs. And I wouldn't have downplayed any of these things. W- wouldn't you guys agree that uh, food and shelter and work and family, aren't those important needs? Okay, good, we're on the same page. But I said, do you know there's a greater need still? And I could, I could just kind of tell they were puzzled, like, man, what, what else is there, right? Family, roof over our head. I mean, for me, full belly is always important. Work. What else is there, Chris? I said, listen, guys and gals, the most important need is forgiveness of sin. Now, what are the implications of this need? If we haven't had this need met, what are the implications? Well, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. So this need is our common denominator. Every human being has this need because we've all what? We've all sinned, and so we all need forgiveness. For all have sinned, Paul says, and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, now we're getting more into the, the implications of this need. Romans 6.23, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. And there he's talking about eternal death, okay? That's a big deal. Romans 8.7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So sin affects the way we think. Because of sin, we are naturally opposed to God, wanting to go our way and not God's way. And then let's go to the Old Testament, Isaiah 59.2. 
But your iniquities, that's just another word for sin, have made a separation. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So we've all sinned. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'll raise mine. We've all sinned. Sin separates us from God and results in divine wrath, eternal separation. Sin is both debilitating and destructive. Sin affects us at the core. It affects the way we see the world and understand reality. It's a cursed thing, and if not dealt with, will leave us cursed forever. So what do we need? What do we need? What's our greatest need? We need forgiveness. We need peace with God. We need to be reconciled to the Holy One. So that brings us, and that was my longest point, by the way, number two, who? Everybody say who. Who? Which owls, right? Um, who is able to meet our greatest need? Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Oh! Okay, so what a glorious truth. Jesus has the authority, the power to forgive our sin. Who can meet our greatest need? Jesus. In fact, that's why he came, amen? Jesus can meet our greatest need. And that brings us to point number three. What gives him the right? What gives Jesus the right to meet our greatest need? Who is this Jesus that he can say to somebody, son, your sins are forgiven? Now, if you don't understand how significant this declaration was, listen to the religious leaders. These are the guys who knew the word, and they're not just puzzled, they're deeply troubled by what Jesus had to say. Verses 6 and 7 of our passage. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man, right, Jesus, speak like that? He is what? He's blaspheming. He's speaking irreverently. He's speaking against the word of God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's right. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And the answer is no one. Only God has the right, the authority to forgive sin. Essentially, they're asking, Jesus, what gives you the right to forgive sin? And I want us to answer this question together, okay? We've got much to look at here. I want to start with Jesus' response to the, the question. Again, what was the question? What gives you the right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? All right, verses 8 to 12. This is the, the crescendo of our passage. And immediately Jesus, now this is cool. I can't do this. You can't either. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. He knows what they're thinking in their hearts. Do you guys have that ability? Clay? I don't. Robert? I can't look at you guys and say, I know exactly what you're thinking right now. But who can? Jesus. So, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, pay attention here. Pay attention. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jacob, whatever his name was, 
get up and walk. And what happens immediately? He gets up and walks. Whoa. So what is the answer to our question? What gives Jesus the right to forgive sin, to meet our greatest need? Here's the answer. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now, three things. How many? Three things point to Jesus' divine identity in our passage. Number one, number one, he forgives sin and powerfully demonstrates his authority to do so. Again, forgiving sin was a divine prerogative, meaning only God can do it. Jesus is doing what only God can do. Number two, he knows the thoughts of man, verse 8. He knew what they were thinking. Who can do that? I can't. Jesus can because Jesus is. Say it with me. He's he's God. And then number three, and this will surprise you, I promise. Jesus declares himself to be the son of man. You're thinking, what does that have to do with Jesus being God? Everything. We'll get there. That's verse 10. All right. Let's start with the question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Let me ask you, which is easier to say? Which is easier? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? There's no way to verify that. I can say, Aaron, your sins are forgiven. Chris, you can't do that. How do you know? I said it. If Aaron, Lord forbid, was paralyzed, and I said, Aaron, get up and walk, and nothing happens, automatically you realize Chris has no what? I got no power. I got no authority. I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud. The second thing is much harder. Again, if I say to the paralytic, get up and walk, and nothing happens, right away you know no power, no authority. So what does Jesus do? This is brilliant. Jesus is brilliant. Listen, verse 10, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Boom! He heals the paralytic. Listen, 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 listen. By doing the second thing, he proves that he has the authority to do the first. Because Jesus does the second thing well, we know that he has the authority to do the first. He proves his authority to forgive sin. The, this is a better way to think about it. The invisible act of forgiving sin is verified or proved by the visible act of healing the paralyzed man. Does that make sense? All right, now you're probably wondering, Chris, cool, I get it, that makes sense. What about the title Son of Man? How does that relate to Jesus being God? Let me tell you. And maybe you're thinking, I thought Jesus was the Son of God. Yes, he is. But 14 times, how many? 14 times in Mark's gospel, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. What's the background? Daniel. Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Don't miss this, okay? I'll come wake you up. I won't do that, but just nudge your neighbor. Don't, don't miss this, please. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This is the Old Testament. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now listen to how this figure is described. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And here's where it gets really good. Into him, to this one like a son of man, 
was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, the Hebrew there, worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All right, so what kind of scene is this in Daniel 7? This is a coronation scene. This is a royal scene. A king in Daniel 7 is being recognized. Who is this mysterious figure? This is a divine figure. He's coming on the clouds. That may mean nothing to you. It sounds cool, but in the Old Testament, who is the one depicted as the cloud rider? Every time, God. God comes on the clouds. But in this passage, who is the one coming on the clouds? The one like a son of man. And he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples will serve or worship him. This passage provides us with an image of an exalted, divine, messianic figure. And when I say Messiah, just think king. The Old Testament promised a coming king who would save the day. This is one of those passages. And Jews in the first century looked back at Daniel 7, and they saw this figure as a divine messianic figure. Let me say one more thing. Jesus primarily uses this title of himself in the context of suffering, okay? Because after he would suffer and die, he would be exalted. So think of Mark 10, 45. Jesus says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in our passage and in Mark's gospel, Jesus embraces this image, claiming to be its fulfillment. And therefore, the one who would bring the kingdom of God to the people of God through his suffering. Guys, do you know that Jesus' suffering is already alluded to in our passage, the cross? The religious leaders, how do they feel about Jesus claiming the right, the authority to forgive sin? Were they like, yes, let's go. No, what do they say? He's blaspheming. Who can do that but God alone? And at this point in Mark's gospel, we see what? The religious leaders, their opposition to Jesus begins to ramp up. And where are we headed in Mark's gospel? Where are we headed? The cross. The cross. Where forgiveness of sin would be provided for sinners like us. Hey, one more place where son of man is used in Mark's gospel, really important with Daniel 7 in the background. Mark 14, 61 to 64. But he remained silent. This is when Jesus is on trial and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. By applying this title, son of man, to himself, the high priest accused Jesus of ascribing deity to himself. To share the throne with the Lord is to be divine. Jesus is here claiming divinity. 
Again, Daniel 7 looks ahead to the great vindication to come. And once the Messiah would accomplish his saving rescue mission, he would be vindicated. He would be raised. One more reference to Daniel 7 in the Gospels, Matthew 28. After Jesus has died and been raised, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the God King. He has the authority to forgive what? What can he forgive? Our sin. So in verse 5, Jesus executes divine authority to forgive sin. And then in verse 10, we see that it's precisely because he's the Son of Man that he has the authority to forgive sin. He is the promised divine King to come. That would suffer, yes, but after suffering, he would be vindicated. Let's take this a bit further. I don't think we realize how important this is. Jesus forgives sin. This is more significant than you might think. The reason Jesus can forgive this man's sin is that he is, he's God. Maybe you're thinking, Chris, we get that. You've already said it like four or five times. I'll say it more, but okay. I want you to listen careful here. All sin is ultimately against two. Remember what David said in 2 Samuel 12 after he had an affair and had the woman's husband murdered? I've sinned against the Lord. And you're thinking, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Well, yes, he sinned against them as well, but all sin is ultimately against two. Okay, so we've all sinned. Raise your hand. You don't have to. I will. All of us have sinned against two. Okay, we've sinned against God. Why? Because we belong to God. We belong to God. He is the creator, and we are the creation. He made us, therefore, and this brings to light the severity of our sin. We've sinned against the creator, the one who, without, we would not even exist. He made us, therefore, all sin is ultimately against him. It's our rebellion against him. Now, some, when they hear that language, automatically picture a divine bully, a a transcendent tyrant, a cruel king, but that is not the God of the Bible. The the God of the Bible is good, and he's just. He's kind and compassionate. He's good. Everybody say he's good, as seen in our passage. And this puts things into perspective. All of our sinning is ultimately against God because we belong to God. He owns us by virtue of the fact that he made us. He's the creator. Jesus is God. And he has the authority to forgive our sin. The one that we sinned against not only has the authority to forgive our sin, but he came so that our sin could be forgiven. We call that what? That's grace. Do we deserve it? We sinned against him. We rebelled against him. We spit in his face. We said, we don't want you. And yet he came, he died for us because he loves us and he has the power, the authority to forgive us. Mark's gospel climaxes with the cross by which our forgiveness was provided and purchased. You know, Jesus doesn't hold back. He, he does what he came to do and upsets the status quo. And every time he does that, we, we see this mounted what? Opposition. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He writes, Jesus knows 
what the religious leaders are thinking. So he knows that if he begins to let on that he's not just a miracle worker, but also the savior of the world, they're eventually going to kill him. If he not only heals this man, but forgives his sins as well, he's taking a decisive, irreversible step down the path to his death. By taking that step, he is putting a down payment on our forgiveness. And what would happen at the cross? Do we know what would happen at the cross? Christ in our place by his grace to bring us into his space. Paul said it better. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died for sinners at the cross. He took the punishment we deserved so that by trusting in him, no longer enemies, but friends and children of God. What a blessing. Amen? Number four, and maybe this is the most important question now. What's our greatest need? Forgiveness of sin. Who can meet that need? Jesus. What gives him the right? He is God. Okay, so that's beautiful, right? That's, that's sweet. Okay, so, whew, Chris, oh, okay, so my greatest need, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness. Ha, oh, right, that's the bad news. The good news is someone can meet that need, Jesus. How can he? Well, he, he's God. Okay, good, but the question maybe hanging in the air right now is, what do I do? <laughs> I mean, woe unto us, hey, bro, you need to get saved, you need Jesus, deuces. And that person's like, what do I do? <laughs> Don't leave, what do I do? I think it was Mark Dever that said, you haven't fully given the gospel until you've shown somebody how to respond to the gospel, right? So number four, how does one have their greatest need met? This is cool. What do we notice? What do we notice about the paralytic and his companions based on Jesus' response? Verse five, and when Jesus saw their Oh, their what? Their faith. All right, so throughout Mark's gospel, whenever Jesus forgives sin or heals the sick, what is always present? Faith. Faith. Faith is clearly present, but what kind of faith? Now, this is important. I remember teaching this passage in Africa, and I really wanted to highlight it matters what you believe about Jesus. You can't just add Jesus to your life, right? Like some accessory. It's all him or nothing, right? And so if you just think Jesus is just a friend and, you know, a good teacher, and no, he's Lord. He is the king, not a king, but the king of kings, amen? So it matters what you believe about him. And I'm going to argue that these five men believed the right things about Jesus, and here's why. What is Jesus preaching up to this point? The kingdom of God. And with every kingdom you have a... Of a king, right? The great expectation when God's kingdom broke in, so would come the Messiah, the promised one who would deliver and rescue God's people. And Jesus, earlier in Mark's gospel, Mark 1.15 says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. All right? So that's his message. He's preaching the kingdom. And who's the one preaching the kingdom? Jesus. And every kingdom has a, a king. Now here's the kicker. Okay, if you look back in Isaiah 35, it says that when the king comes, you'll recognize him because the eyes of the blind will be opened and the lame will leap like a deer and the mute will sing for joy and deaf ears will be unstopped. And what is Jesus doing 
when he goes around preaching the kingdom. He's healing the sick and the lame. Uh-oh, who could this be? <laughs> Again, I would argue that the four men in the paralytic, knowing that Jesus was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, he was healing people, put two and two together, and thus placed their faith in Jesus as the promised king. To receive forgiveness of sin and to be reconciled to a holy God, one must put his or her faith in Jesus as Messiah, as king. It matters what you believe about Jesus. In believing in him as Messiah, you are acknowledging him as king, as Lord, as the one sent by the Father to rescue sinners like us through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, this is the best part of the passage. Are you ready for this? You ready? Yes. Okay, that was good. That was firm. Yes! Come on! I want us to notice one more thing about Jesus' response. And this is so easy to miss. It's so subtle, but it's so rich. And if you don't know Greek, you're not going to catch it. So, nah, nah, nah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's why we learned it, right, Aaron? Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son. He could have said, bro, broski, dude, man. But he uses a very specific word, technone, son, your sins are forgiven. What's significant about Jesus' address here? I just said, I mean, well, I'll talk about that later. I love adoption. I love, yes, adopting children, but if you're a Christian, you've been adopted, amen? No longer an enemy of God, but a child of God. What does he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. The Greek word used here, technon, denotes a special relationship of endearment. Jesus says, technon, dear one, beloved one, child. What does this tell us about Jesus? This wasn't some formal acknowledgement. This wasn't a mundane greeting. Jesus, listen to this, was acknowledging a change in identity. Through faith in Jesus, the paralytic was now a child of God, a son. Oh, that's remarkable, amen? When we trust in Jesus, this is what I want us to get, when we trust in Jesus, when we acknowledge him as king, we are brought into the family of God and forgiven. Our greatest need is met when you trust in Jesus. No longer an enemy, but a child, a son or daughter. That's point number five. Faith in Jesus brings us into the family of God. All right, let me end with some application. What do we do with this passage? What do we do with it? Two things. Number one, repent and believe. When you repent... You're acknowledging that you're not king. Again, because of sin, we want to rule our lives independently of God. We want the glory. We want the recognition. We want to be able to say, God, I did it, and I did it independently of you. That's foolish and wrong and sinful, and it will not work. You can look to everything else in this world, but the only way to have your, our greatest need met is to trust in Jesus. So to repent means to acknowledge I'm a sinner Jesus, I've tried to live my life without you for too long. I'm sorry, and I'm going to trust in you as king. All right? So when you repent, you're turning 
from something to something. You're trusting in Jesus. Trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with God. You can have your greatest need met today. What's your greatest need? What's our greatest need? Forgiveness of sin. Who can meet that need? Why? He's God. How do we have it met? By trusting in him. Okay, after this sermon, you have no excuse for not sharing the gospel. Because that passage does it for you. Here's the second thing. Repent and believe. That's the first. Number two, proclaim Jesus as the one who can meet our greatest need. Share this good news with others. Do you know what Carl F.H. Henry said? And you're thinking, who's Carl F.H. Henry? Let me tell you what Carl said. The good news is only good news if it gets there in time. Ooh, I know. That's a good one, right? That's not a Chris Taylor. That's a Carl F.H. Henry. Make sure it gets there in time. If you have loved ones, friends, I mean, listen, Thanksgiving, I I love it because you're going to be around family that you might not like. You're going to be around people that you haven't seen in a while. But I know all of us have family and friends that don't know Jesus that haven't had their greatest need met. So what are you going to do? Make sure the good news gets there in time. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them, hey, listen, the bad news is we're all sinners. The bad news is our sin puts us on the outs with God. It separates us from a holy and good God. The good news is Christ came to die for us so that if we trust in him, we're no longer enemies but children of God. Let me summarize, and then I'll pray. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Jesus can forgive our sin and thus meet our greatest need because he is God and we receive forgiveness by trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior and King. Have you done that? Have you done that? Don't wait. Don't wait. Who has ever had their expectations exceeded? You go to a restaurant, you heard it was okay, and you leave, and you're like, dude, I'm never going anywhere else again. Let me tell you guys something. You know about this, Adam. Those rolls at Texas Roadhouse, you mentioned, there, and I was like, I haven't been there in years. That's all I think about now. <laughs> I bet I have the record. I bet I can eat more rolls there than anyone in this place. All of you combined. I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you go to a restaurant, maybe a movie, a song people are talking about, and you're like, eh. But then you hear it, you see it, you experience Wow, that was amazing. This man comes for physical healing, and he receives something far greater. Spiritual healing, forgiveness. That's what Jesus does. He meets our greatest needs. He exceeds our expectations. Amen? He makes us new. He heals our brokenness. He gives us new hearts. He brings us into fellowship with God. Trust in Jesus and tell others about Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you are king. You truly are the son of man. All power, all authority in heaven and on earth is yours. Jesus, you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. And for that, we are eternally grateful. I pray that none of us would leave this place without first having our greatest need met. 
I pray that all of us would trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sin, and I pray that all of us would leave this place with people in our hearts and minds that don't know you, that this week and next week we can begin sharing the good news with, so that by your grace they can trust in Jesus for forgiveness. We love you, Lord. Bless uh, your church. Holy Spirit, apply the truth we've heard to our hearts, and may we leave changed. And it's in Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.